This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Test Tube News, Intersection, The Young Turks, Making Contact, Redacted Tonight with Lee Camp, The David Pakman Show, and The Ralph Nader Radio Hour. We recently did an episode on how some states are enacting laws to discourage and prevent U.S. citizens from voting. And one of those laws, we pointed out, requires people to present a photo ID when they go to vote. And the comment section exploded. It was mainly people just wanting to know why requiring ID was a bad thing. After all, you needed to do pretty much everything else, so why not voting? Well, almost 11% of the U.S. voting population does not have a photo ID. That's 3.2 million people. For me, that fact alone is enough to list voter ID requirements as laws that stop people from voting. But let's take a look at who those 3.2 million people without voter ID actually are. The majority of them fall into four categories. Young adults, the elderly, minorities, and the poor. 18% of all seniors and 25% of African Americans don't have a picture ID. If photo ID requirements were enacted in every U.S. state, almost a fifth of the elderly population and a full quarter of the African American population would not be able to vote. Which begs the question, why can't they just get IDs? The people without IDs are the very same people that don't have driver's licenses. So they can't just drive on down to the DMV and pick up a photo ID card. A lot of them live in rural areas that are nowhere near the closest DMV. Others may not have driver's licenses because they can't afford a car. They also can't afford to lose a day at work at the DMV, a place primarily known for wasting people's time. Plus, some states require a birth certificate to get a state-issued photo ID, while also requiring a photo ID to obtain a birth certificate. The law also limits absentee voting, which is how seniors who are unable to make it to the polls vote. And that is the truly alarming thing about voter ID laws. We're not talking about stopping people who don't vote from voting. We're talking about stopping active voters from voting. The elderly are the most consistent voters of any demographic. Minorities voted in the 2008 presidential election at virtually the same rate as non-minorities. And that same year, young people, ages 18 to 24, had the highest turnout for that age group since 1992. So is there an argument for requiring voter ID? The number one reason given for wanting it is to stop voter fraud. Supporters of the law want everyone to show an ID so that people can't just walk in off the street, say any name they want, and vote away which would be a good reason to want voters to have ID if that were happening, but it's not. In fact, according to the Brennan Center at NYU School of Law, this type of voter fraud is less likely to happen than death by lightning. Obviously, we want to keep our elections fair, so we shouldn't completely discount voter fraud, but this new law simply isn't a good way to do that. August 6th marked the 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act, the VRA. This is the measure that blocked the Jim Crow discrimination and intimidation that kept so many black citizens from using what is guaranteed by the 15th Amendment, the right to vote. Here's LBJ introducing the bill to Congress. The Constitution says that no person shall be kept from voting because of his race or his color. We have all sworn an oath 
before God to support and to defend that Constitution. We must now act in obedience to that oath. This past March, President Obama went to Selma, Alabama. He stood at the foot of the Edmund Pettus Bridge, where back in the spring of 65, peaceful activists, led by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., were assaulted as they marched for their rights. Ava DuVernay dramatized the march in her film Selma. The president doesn't want us to march today. The courts don't want us to march. But we must march. We must stand up. We must make a massive demonstration of our moral certainty. President Obama commemorated the heroism of those women and men in his Selma speech. But he also had another message. Right now, in 2015, 50 years after Selma, there are laws across this country designed to make it harder for people to vote. As we speak, more such laws are being proposed. Meanwhile, the Voting Rights Act, the culmination of so much blood, so much sweat and tears, the product of so much sacrifice in the face of wanton violence, the Voting Rights Act stands weakened. What weakening was the president talking about? In 2013, the Supreme Court struck down what activist-turned-Congressman John Lewis called the heart and soul of the law, Section 4 and Section 5. These two sections said that certain states with a history of discrimination against black people could not change their voting laws without the federal government weighing in. Now, that oversight is gone. So here's what that Supreme Court decision said to black voters. Racism, as we knew it in Jim Crow days, is over. So there's no need for these laws anymore. At the same time as all this was happening, Republicans across the country started rolling back early voting hours, eliminating same-day registration, and doing other things to make it more difficult for people to cast a ballot. North Carolina passed some of the harshest restrictions on its voters. More on that in a bit. In short, the fight for equal voting rights isn't over yet. As my former boss, Melissa Harris-Perry, would often say, the struggle continues. Here with me in the studio are two experts on voting rights. First, Ari Berman, reporter for The Nation magazine and author of the new book, Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. He's also an inveterate Knicks fan. I hope that's not going to be on the first line of my obit. <laughs> it just might. <laughs> also here with me is Dale Ho, the director of the Voting Rights Projects at the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU. Thanks for being here, Dale. Thanks a lot. First, voting rights are under attack throughout the country but especially in North Carolina. There's a lawsuit underway. Can you tell us what's going on? Sure. North Carolina passed what um, election law expert Rick Hausen called at the time the most restrictive voting law that the country had seen in decades. It was a law that not only established a very strict voter identification requirement, but also cut a week of early voting, days on which 900,000 people had cast their ballots in the 2012 presidential election. It eliminated same-day registration, which 90,000 people had used to cast their ballots in the 2012 election, and made the counting of out-of-precinct ballots unlawful lawful in North Carolina. So in the past, people who had appeared at the wrong precinct, either by accident or because they couldn't get to the correct precinct before the polls closed, their ballots used to count. And North Carolina decided they would throw those ballots in the trash rather than count them. All right. You've been in North Carolina recently. What, what have you seen when you were down there? 
North Carolina is so important because they passed this law that Dale just described a month after the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act. So the ink was barely dry on the decision or however they do Supreme Court decisions these days. And North Carolina was rushing to essentially restructure its entire electoral system, cutting or repealing uh, everything in the state that made it easier to vote. So we had states that had done a lot of bad stuff before North Carolina. Texas passed a strict voter ID law. Florida cut early voting and shut down voter registration drives. Iowa disenfranchised ex-felons. A whole laundry list of things states had done. No one put it all in one bill before. <laughs> and no one and no one did it a month after the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act. What forces in North Carolina were working to make those changes in it seemed like in anticipation of that ruling. Well, actually, if you back up a little bit, I think the history over the previous 15 years is really important in North Carolina. It's a state that had gone from really one of the worst in the country in terms of voter participation and in particular African-American participation rates to when you get to the 2000s, at the same time that they adopted a number of these reforms, early in-person voting, same-day registration, pre-registration for 16- and 17-year-olds, suddenly North Carolina shot up and became one of the best. I think what some people saw was that these reforms maybe worked too well for their tastes. What we should realize is these reforms were very fragile. The increases in voter turnout had not been happening for a long time. It was not a swing state for a long time. So it was still a fragile democracy that was maturing. And then someone comes in with a battle axe and smashes it all to pieces. And I think that's why North Carolina got so much attention. All right, I want to go back in time a little bit. You wrote in your book about how the 2000 election helped speed up the erosion of voting rights throughout the country. What did this election do to create a new wave of voter disenfranchisement? Well, I think Florida 2000 was a pivotal turning point. There was a voter purge in that state where thousands of people, disproportionately African-American, were labeled as felons and prevented from voting, and it could have tipped the outcome of the election. The second thing that happens is after the Bush administration is elected, they embark on this crusade against voter fraud, and they start hyping the existence of fraud to build support for measures that make it harder to vote. So I think it led to a new wave of voter disenfranchisement because I, I think the GOP realized they could get away with this. And the second thing that that happened as a result of Florida is George W. Bush got to name two Supreme Court justices. And those were the two Supreme Court justices that cast the deciding votes to gut the Voting Rights Act. And it's interesting because Ted Cruz, who at that time is policy director to the Bush 2000 campaign, his first call or one of his first calls after uh, the election in Florida during the recount is to John Roberts, who's a lawyer in private practice. And he says, John, you got to get down here. We have to figure out a way that all these ballots aren't counted. All these disputed ballots aren't counted. So John Roberts comes down and advises the Bush campaign on their brief to the Supreme Court. It goes to the Supreme Court. Obviously, the Supreme Court stops the vote. And lo and behold, five years later, George W. Bush appoints John Roberts to the Supreme Court. And then he, in 2013, guts the Voting Rights Act. So there's a very disturbing symmetry all the way through this story. Dale, took us through what happened on the Hill, you know, as far as Democrats trying to fix the Voting Rights Act and also what Republicans are doing to stop that. Well, I think what's if I could just back up for a second, well, I think of course. something's interesting is the last time the Voting Rights Act came up for reauthorization was in 2006. And um, I think going into that process, there were some questions about what might happen. Is the law going to be amended? Is it going to be reauthorized? And at the end of a long legislative process, 
um, you know, something like close to 20 hearings over um, over a year long period, it passed with overwhelming support in Congress, 98 to nothing in the Senate, uh, 390 to 33 in the House. So this is a law that uh, not only recently, but if you go back even farther, the previous reauthorizations were signed by President Reagan, President Nixon. It, it's a law that is historically and even in recent history enjoyed enormous bipartisan support. What do you have to remember is bipartisan support was so strong for the VRA in Congress, including among so many Republicans, that even Republican presidents who tried relentlessly to gut the VRA, Nixon first and then Reagan, they hated the Voting Rights Act. And yet still, the law emerged stronger when it was reauthorized every single time because there was such a strong bipartisan support that when Nixon tried to gut the Voting Rights Act, it was Republicans who stood up and said, you're not going to do this. This is part of the history of our party. When Reagan tried to gut the Voting Rights Act and his Civil Rights Division tried to not enforce law, it was Republicans who stood up and said, we're not going to let it happen. And so it's only recently, I think, that Republicans in particular have turned their back on a law that's that they're responsible for. Really, they should be proud of as one of the best things that their party has done. Well, what do you think is motivating this then? The calculus of the Republican Party shifted. Uh, the Republican Party decided after Obama's election that they probably weren't going to be able to get black voters and Hispanic voters and Asian American voters in any sort of large number. So if you're not going to reach, you have basically two options as a party. You either reach out to these constituencies with policy proposals and rhetoric that appeals to them. Or you decide that you're going to make it harder for them to participate in the political process. There's really not a third option if you're trying to swing an election. And they went for the latter option, I think, to the surprise of many people that thought the Republican Party would reach out to new constituencies after 2008 and 2012. We're seeing basic battles over registration and access to the ballot box that we haven't seen in decades. Now, so I'm the, I'm the, I'm the dork here. I'm the lawyer, right? Um, from, but you know, to get dorky and wonky about this for a second, if you get on. Hey, Jamil used to work for a show called Nerdland. Okay. He may <laughs> take issue with that. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair Don't enough. go there. Yeah. Yeah. That's totally fair. But, you know, voter ID laws are the issue that has become the most controversial now. But if you look at 2008, there were only two states in the country that had strict voter identification laws. By the time you get to 2012, 2013, it's over a dozen, right? Mm -hmm. So something changed. And the point of inflection that I identify is the 2008 election, where for the first time in history, people of color were over a quarter of the eligible electorate and turned out in record numbers. And most of them are disproportionately using these types of voting, early voting, same day registration, the very types of participation that we're seeing under attack just a few years after that election. So that's the big change that, that I see happening. I really think the 2008 election led some folks to think that instead of competing over these emerging portions of the electorate, they ought to try to tamp them down. Now, Dale mentioned, you know, the voter ID laws and another presidential candidate on the Republican side, Rick Perry, recently said that if you have to carry an ID to board a plane, it shouldn't be a big deal to have to carry one to vote. Why is that stupid? Actually, I, I, I'd like to talk about that for a second. Everyone always comes out and says, well, you need an ID to board a plane. Actually, it's not true, right? They ask you for an ID, right? That's the sort of first line when you get to the security line. But if you don't have one, um, maybe because you lost it while you were on a trip, that does happen to people from time to time, or you packed it in your suitcase, they pull you aside, and then they put you through a different security procedure, right? So there are fail-safes in place for people without ID to actually get on a plane and go about their business. The problem with these really strict voter identification laws isn't that they ask people for ID necessarily. It's that they have 
no backup mechanism for the person who doesn't have an ID because that person is disabled and can't drive or that person's only ID is their VA ID card, right? They, they don't own a car or something like that, right? So that's what we're concerned about. And you look at the statistics from states, you know, in, in, in every state, it's something like 4 to 10% of the adult population that doesn't have an ID. They're disproportionately poor. They're disproportionately people who are disabled and they're disproportionately people of color. So that's our objection to these laws. Yeah, I think, you know, Texas is the perfect case study because the Texas voter ID, there's been two trials in Texas, so we have very good data now on, on their voter ID law, and it, it debunks all the myths about voter ID. The first myth it debunks is that everyone has an ID. According to a long record that has been determined in the Texas trials, about 5% of the electorate doesn't have a government-issued ID. The second thing that it debunks is that everyone can get an ID. And here's the problem in Texas. Number one, a birth certificate or some of the underlying documents needed to get an ID costs money. Number two, even if someone can afford to do it, which constitutionally you shouldn't have to pay to vote or for underlying documents to vote. Even if you can afford to, let's say uh, you were born at home in the segregated South by a midwife. You never got a birth certificate. There's no record of your birth. So you can't get a birth certificate. So then it becomes very complicated. Then let's just say, uh, for some reason or another, you, you had this ID, it lapsed, whatever. You had a driver's license, it's expired, you need to get a new one. Well, a third of counties in Texas don't have a DMV office. So what if I even didn't have this documentation or I need to get it renewed and I live in one of these rural counties with no – this is Texas, okay? There's no public transportation in rural Texas. How am I supposed to get an adjoining county 200 miles away to get an ID? So I think you have to dig deeper here. The talking points sound great. If you can buy Sudafed with it, you can use it to vote. But I think when you really look at the record in these cases, you see that, that it is burdening people. And it's not just burdening deadbeats. It's burdening people that have voted all their lives and are now being disenfranchised. And when I hear these stories, it absolutely breaks my heart. And remember, the rationale for these IDs, is, these ID laws is that the government needs to know who you are before you vote. So you need a government-issued photo ID, right? In Texas, for instance, driver's license, okay. Concealed weapons permit, okay. Student ID card issued by the University of Texas, which is, after all, part of the government, for some reason, not okay. Hmm, that's awfully curious. If right. the point of the law is for the government to ensure that it knows who you are, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. If instead it's to change the shape of the electorate, well, that law starts to make a whole lot more sense. And I should add that the other thing that the Texas voter ID case debunked is this notion that voter fraud, particularly voter impersonation, is rampant. Because I think Texas could only point to four cases of voter impersonation in the previous decade. And a lot of them were someone, husband had died and they just wanted to vote in his memory. I mean, it was there was no nefarious cases of someone showing up trying to swing an election. Texas and all these other uh, states are case studies for the fact that voter impersonation, above all, just really doesn't exist and is not a problem in American elections. Geniuses over at Fox and Friends, uh, we're talking about um, citizenship and, and what's required to get citizenship. And then they had a clever idea in the middle of that segment. I want you to listen to it and, and watch the question that they use as an example 
and we'll come back and talk about it. Let's face it, a kids graduate from high school and they don't know squat. So there's at least one state that is suggesting if you want to pass and graduate from high school, you've got to pass the same 100-question test that we apply to immigrants who want to become American citizens. Yes. I just don't understand how you can come up as an educator and ask yourself, well, we have to de-emphasize American history a little bit. So many people who are intelligent get straight A's. You ask the most basic thing about American history, like who was fighting in the You're Civil right. War. But they don't Brian, know. These questions are even and more basic hot. than that. For instance, here's one of the typical questions. What ocean is on the west coast of the United States? Hmm. Mm. Who signs More bills time. to become laws? Hmm. Well, that gets is this, confusing. Is this test multiple choice? That's what everyone's asking here. And when do we celebrate Independence Day? Listen, not only, okay, you've got to answer those questions correctly to become a citizen of the United States. I think not only would it be great if high school students had to have a proficiency in America, but I think they should have a test before you vote. Just so you know what not you're bad. voting. Not bad. Right? 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 I love how they said that everybody in the studio is asking, wait, is it multiple choice? <laughs> like, I get, I get choices here, right? <laughs> Did you notice the question they used for whether you have enough literacy about our government to be able to vote. What ocean is on the West Coast? And that would have to do with our government how? Now I know it's part of the immigration test. Okay, I might have picked a different example if you were going to go on and on about how you have to know about our government before you're allowed to vote. Now, here comes a much deeper irony. There used to be a literacy test in this country and not that long ago. In fact, let me quote you uh, the literacy test used in Louisiana in the 1960s, not 1860s, 1960s, okay? They would have African-Americans take this test. It would have to be done in 10 minutes or less, and you would have to get a perfect score to be allowed to vote. And then they would have questions like this. Write every other word in the first line and print every third word in the same line. Originally type smaller and first line ended at comma, but capitalize the fifth word that you write. <laughs> Gee, I wonder if they were done, if this was intended for them to fail. I can't quite tell. Here's one other question. Write, write from the left to the right as you see it spelled here. <laughs> it's possible. It's going to take you a little while to work through it. Okay. So we had literacy tests, and the whole point was to make sure that African Americans didn't vote. Now, the great irony of this is that that's part of American history. And if the idiots at Fox and Friends actually knew anything about our government, our politics, and our history, they would have known that. And they would have known that this is something that was used to block people from voting, and that it was abhorrent, and that we changed that so that everybody had an equal right to vote. Instead, they turn around and use the same idea while saying, no one knows anything about American history. Am I right? Am I right? We had an ultra-segregationist by the name of Leander Perez, who was a part of the National White Citizen Council for Alabama, Mississippi, and all those states to prevent people from registering to vote. But Mr. Victor Ragas 
was one of the civil rights leaders, and he started the first march for the right to vote in Plaquemine Parish in 1941. So people be hearing about Sam, Alabama, and uh, all other places in the country. My exhibit here in this building is so that future generations understand that when you think of Dr. Martin Luther King and all these people, you have people in Plaquemine Parish who are doing this work, you know, since the early 40s. Reverend Tyrone Edwards' exhibit, Freedom Fighters for the Right to Vote, honors the struggle for civil rights in Plaquemines Parish, Louisiana. Communities throughout the South, just like this one, are filled with local heroes who never made it to the history books, but played an influential role in shaping civil rights legislation. On this edition of Making Contact, we'll hear how people are trying to preserve these legacies and how 50 years after the Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act, shifting policies are threatening some of those hard-fought gains towards equality. First, we head to Monroe, Georgia, where the last mass lynching in the U.S. took place back in 1946. The case remains open, but one group stages an annual reenactment in hopes of solving it and drawing attention to the political repression at the time. Anna Simonton's father plays a Klansman in the reenactment. She takes us to the scene. They say you've been putting your hands on my woman. The hell you got to say about that, Hester? I ain't going to tell you again. Get off my property before I kick you off. It was in 1946 in the small town of Monroe, Georgia, on a hot July afternoon, when Roger Malcolm, a black man, accused his white employer, Barnett Hester, of sleeping with his wife. Their argument turned physical, and Malcolm stabbed Hester, then fled. He turned himself over to local law enforcement later that day and was booked at the Walton County Jail. Roger Malcolm's wife, Dorothy Malcolm, sought help from Loy Harrison, a wealthy white farmer her relatives worked for. On July 25, 1946, Harrison drove Dorothy Malcolm, along with her brother and his wife, to Monroe, where they bailed out Roger Malcolm from jail. Mr. Loy, I so appreciate this. On the way to the farm, Harrison took a back road through cotton fields and groves of trees. When they arrived at the Moores Ford Bridge, vehicles blocked the road on the other side. Men emerged from them and advanced toward Harrison's car as he slowed down. They had laid in wait for Roger Malcolm, the black man who had stabbed his white boss. Some of the men pulled Roger Malcolm from the car and put a noose around his neck. They began to lead him down to a field when Dorothy Malcolm suddenly shouted the name of one of the members of the mob. Later, Loy Harrison would tell the FBI that this happened, but would insist he couldn't remember the name she shouted. Instead of lynching only Roger Malcolm, they would execute the three witnesses as well. It would be the last mass lynching in the United States. Get them all out of the car! Members of the mob tied up the two couples. One, two, three, fire! No more! And then they fired 60 bullets into their bodies.
Georgia State Representative Tyrone Brooks leads an audience through each scene of this annual reenactment of the mass lynching. He's been instrumental in organizing the event over the past 10 years, and in that time, he's come to emphasize one aspect of this crime in particular. The tragedy at the Boys Ford Bridge on July 20th of 1946 was more than just the lynching of two African-American couples. It really was a way to instill fear in the African-American community and to keep us away from the voting booths. Since 1891, Georgia, like a number of southern states, had a law preventing black people from voting in the Democratic primary. Cliff Kuhn, a history professor at Georgia State University, explains. The Democratic primary being all white, where the argument was the Democratic Party is a, a, a private club and can exclude whomever it wants you know, on the basis of the fact that it's a private club. The Democratic primary was the only election that really mattered, and African Americans were excluded. But in 1944, a black preacher from Columbus, Georgia, filed a lawsuit challenging the all-white primary, and his case went all the way to the Supreme Court. On April 1, 1946, the court ruled that Georgia's whites-only Democratic primary was unconstitutional. That paved the way for a dramatic voter registration drive among African Americans in the spring of 1946, uh, where over 100,000 black Georgians registered to vote, far and away the mo more than in any other southern state. It also paved the way for Eugene Talmadge, Georgia's three-time former governor and racist firebrand, to enter the gubernatorial race that year. In 1946, the conditions were ripe for Talmadge to do what he did best, capitalize on racist fear-mongering. If elected your governor, I shall see that the traditions which were fought for by our grandparents are maintained and preserved. I shall see that the people of this state have a democratic white primary. Every year, reenactors stage a Talmadge speech in between the fight scene and the jail scene. Talmadge won the primary. An FBI investigation later revealed that elections officials had purged thousands of ballots cast by black voters. In the run-up to the primaries, white people in towns across Georgia intimidated would-be black voters with cross-burnings, mob gatherings, and pamphlets that threatened fatal retaliation. Professor Kuhn says the worst episode took place in Butler, Georgia. The one black man who dares to vote in the primaries, a man named Maceo Snipes, World War II veteran, goes to the polls in his uniform, shot in the back when he leaves, is murdered. You know, uh, you know, so we're talking a range of forms of violence and intimidation that the Talmadge fo folks in particular unleash leading up to the primary in July. Eight days after the murder of Maceo Snipes, Roger Malcolm would be lynched, along with Dorothy Malcolm and her brother and sister-in-law. Tyrone Brooks says the timing was no coincidence. It was more about voting in 1946 than just an incident between Roger Malcolm and Barnett Hester. It was, it was a whole climate of suppressing the vote. They were angry about the Supreme Court ruling. They were shocked that the Supreme Court would rule to strike down an all-white primary. But it happened. Unlike so many lynchings before, the massacre at Moore's Ford Bridge provoked a national outcry. It became the most massive lynching investigation in the nation's history. 
but after six months, during which FBI agents interviewed more than 2,000 people and came up with a list of 55 suspects, the case was left cold. No one was ever charged. Professor Kuhn says this is typical. And time after time after time after time after time during the lynching era, the coroner's report would say at the hands of persons unknown when everybody knew who had done it. In 2007, the Associated Press obtained FBI files showing that the agency investigated suspicions that Governor-elect Eugene Talmadge was in on the lynching. According to an unconfirmed witness, Talmadge met with the brother of the man Roger Malcolm had stabbed and offered immunity to anyone who, quote, took care of Malcolm. State Representative Tyrone Brooks. I want people to understand that the struggle for voting rights didn't start in 1965. Twenty years before Selma, that was a Monroe, uh, that was a Butler, uh, that was the Malcolms and Dorses, that was the Maceo Snipes, and, and many others across the South. In 1999, Georgia Governor Roy Barnes reopened the Georgia Bureau of Investigations, or GBI, probe into the lynching. The FBI followed suit, reopening its investigation in 2006. But so far, neither has led to charges being brought. You know, the GBI and local and others have brought information time after time to the doorsteps of the local district attorney, the federal agencies, U.S. attorneys, and for whatever reason, they've decided we are not going to move on these suspects. Brooks says the next step is to push for a congressional investigation. For now, civil rights groups continue to organize this reenactment as a refusal to forget and as a call for justice. From Monroe, Georgia, for Making Contact, I'm Anna Simonton. A long time coming and I know a change is going to come. I just need some comfort. That this war we're fighting can really bring some peace. There's no rhyme, no reason, no sweet melody. More and more weapons mean less security. It's been a long, long time coming, but I know a change is going to come. Investigative journalist Greg Palast has completed a months-long investigation into the upcoming voter purge that may involve as many as 27 states and millions of voters. If you haven't heard of Palast, he's the last remaining investigative reporter. The mainstream media reporters cut the investigating part out years ago in order to make more room for hot yoga and electrolysis. They're, they're hardly even hanging on to the reporting part. I mean, most of them are reporters in the same way reality TV show hosts are talented. A.C. <laughs> Slater would have...
and hated that guy, all right? <laughs> anyway, a voter purge is when various elected officials decide that our democratic republic contains too much voting. Too many Americans are having their voices heard. So what to do? Well, you just knock millions of people off the voter rolls, preferably minorities. <laughs> Why minorities? Firstly, because voter suppression is done largely by Republicans and minorities vote largely for Democrats. Secondly, because they're minorities. Yeah. <laughs> Palace found that the heart of the voter roll scrubbing is called the interstate cross-check, in which a sophisticated computer program finds matching names in multiple states. Ostensibly, this is to root out all those people who vote in two states. You know, you know how, like, your neighbors and your friends, they often vote in one state and then drive to a second state <laughs> just to squeeze in that second vote, you know, get a little, get a little sweet extra voting action as it were. You know how it is. No, me neither. It never happens. We're spending millions of dollars to cut millions of people off the voter rolls to stop something that never happens. It would be like punching every airport cashier in the face to stop them from undercharging you. What? Only two dollars for a crab cake sandwich? This is outrageous, you asshole. But there's one problem with this sophisticated computer program. It's too sophisticated. It tells officials whether the supposed double voter has the same social security number. However, in documents obtained by Palace, election officials are told not to worry about whether social security numbers match and to ignore whether middle names are even the same. Basically, use this program to find criminal double voters and then ignore whether they're actually criminal double voters. The double voters actually cut from the rolls are people like Kevin Antonio Hayes of Durham, North Carolina, because he was considered to be the same guy as Kevin Thomas Hayes, who voted in Alexandria, Virginia. So, as is pretty obvious to anyone with an intelligence above that of a butternut squash, these are not the same people, all right? Kevin Antonio Hayes is not voting in Durham, North Carolina, then jumping in his car, driving 253 miles to Alexandria, Virginia, and then going, Hello, I am Kevin and Thomas Hayes, and I'm here to vote. I am here to risk years in prison in order to give one extra vote to my favorite white male oligarch in his bid for re-election. I am here to exercise my suffrage. If you knew Kevin Antonio Hayes, I nailed that impersonation. I did. He has very hairy fingers, he does. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I would like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and get everything you can get used from a place like Craigslist. You will save yourself a boatload of money and reduce the endless flow of new stuff getting shipped across the world because that seems more convenient than meeting a neighbor. Failing that, try a locally owned small business. 
Failing that, if you're left with no choice other than to buy something from a place like Amazon, then at least there's a way you can do it and support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com and shop as you normally would. Better yet, click through on the link to your country's Amazon store only once and then bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumption altogether, consuming sustainably, or at least consuming in a subversive way. We've talked about the problem of uh, low voter turnout in the United States many, many times. And usually when we have that conversation, the, the discussion, the, the sort of main argument becomes whether the United States should implement mandatory voting like some countries have or not. And the reality is there are lots of options in between. And Oregon has actually taken action on this. The L.A. Times is reporting that as of this week, Oregonians will have to register not to vote. In other words, under the new Oregon law, any eligible voter will be registered automatically unless they choose to opt out of being registered to vote. Instead of opting in, voters must opt out if they do not want to be on the voter rolls. Those who are registered through this new process are going to be notified by mail They'll be given three weeks to take themselves off of the voting rolls. And if they don't opt out, the Secretary of State's office will mail them a ballot automatically 20 days before any election. This makes so much sense for so many reasons, and we're going to get into some of that. The governor, Kate Brown, said as she signed the bill, quote, In my role as Secretary of State, I proposed a new way of registering to vote. We call it new motor voter. It was my top priority, and I am absolutely thrilled to be signing this into law as the new governor. Virtually every Oregonian will be able to have their voice heard. There are about 2.2 million registered voters in Oregon, according to Tony Green, who's a spokesman for the Secretary of State, Gene Atkins. And an additional 800,000 or so are not registered, but are eligible to vote in Oregon. So the new law is expected to bring about half of those 400,000 more voters onto the voter rolls. Myrna Perez, who's the director of the Voters' Rights and Elections Project at the Brennan Center for Justice, says that this is a, quote, groundbreaking innovation. Quote, Oregon takes it further than any other state by putting the burden on the government Instead of asking voters, do you want to register to vote? They ask voters, do you not want to vote? So this, let's, let's really dig into this. I never understood why you had to actively register to vote unless you've moved, for example, and you have to let someone know, oh, I used to vote here. Now I vote somewhere else. That makes sense. But otherwise, why is the default that you don't get to vote? You're not on the list of voters unless you take this step of saying, I'm not showing up to vote today. I'm just showing up to register to vote in the future, with the exception of states that have same-day registration, of course. So the consequences will be, obviously, higher voter turnout. If you get mailed a ballot automatically, you are way more likely to vote. So if we take sort of 
concentric circles, where at the center you have likely voters who have voted in the last four elections, for example. They are very likely to go to the voting booth on election day. Then you have those who have voted in the past and are registered, but don't vote quite as frequently, and they're sort of a little less likely to vote. And as you go down this sort of tiered or concentric circle system, you get to people who do have some interest in voting, but they may have forgotten to register, or they don't really care about registering, or they would vote if they were mailed a ballot, but they wouldn't actually go anywhere at 7 a.m. before work on voting day. These are the people who are going to be voting that as a result of this program. And remember that as progressives, we want more people voting. We want more people voting not only because we want a democracy that is truly representative of as many of the people in it as possible, but number two, because the progressive, the more progressive, the more liberal candidate tends to win more often when voter turnout is higher. So Republicans don't want to increase voter turnout unless it's a very specific group of people. Progressives and liberals always should want to increase voter turnout because all else being equal, progressives do better when more people vote. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, automatic voter registration. According to the Brennan Center for Justice, 21 states have enacted new voting restrictions in the last five years. In 15 of those states, the new laws, including voter registration rollbacks to early voting cuts to voter ID requirements, will be in effect for the 2016 election. As these voter disenfranchisements have spread, however, a handful of states are attempting to expand access to the ballot. Oregon passed automatic voter registration in March, and California followed suit last week. New Jersey's legislature sent their bill to the governor's desk where it awaits his signature. After Governor Jerry Brown signed the law, California Secretary of State Alex Padilla tweeted an obvious but apparently necessary declaration, democracy is stronger when more citizens can vote. And as voting rights guru Ari Berman, who we've heard from today, reported at The Nation this week, quote, you'd think that would be a truism in democracy, but unfortunately, too many states under Republican control have enacted new laws making it harder to vote in recent years. From 2011 to 2015, 468 new voting restrictions have been introduced in 49 states. It's a shame that on the 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act, a quarter of Americans, 51 million citizens, are not not registered to vote. Let's hope more states follow the model of California, unquote. The Brennan Center is leading a push for a national automatic voter registration. Representative David Cicilline of Rhode Island introduced the Automatic Voter Registration Act this summer, and 45 co-sponsors have signed on in support. There are also a number of bills circulating through state legislatures that would eliminate the barrier of having to affirmatively register to vote. Voter expansion has leaked into the presidential race with candidate Hillary Clinton calling for widespread reform and criticizing Republican candidates for supporting restrictions. Right now is the 
time to raise awareness and push the issue on a national level. You can find the full list of bills at the Brennan Center's automatic voter registration post, which is part of their voting rights and elections section of the issues tab at brennancenter.org, or just click the link in our segment notes. Also use contactingthecongress.org to drop your national representatives a note asking them to support the Automatic Voter Registration Act and find your state reps at openstates.org to support voter expansion where you live. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestofleft.com. If ending voter disenfranchisement matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about automatic voter registration via social media so that others in your network can get involved. Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed, weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now? Cause that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change. And I'm really amazed at how many very sophisticated people who've been in politics don't understand that they've got to put pressure on Congress by organizing cohesive Congress watch groups in every congressional district. And as long as the attitude is, well, we'll vote for the least worst of the two parties, I'm not excited about the Democrats, but they're not as bad as the Republicans, that gives a leeway for both parties to get worse every four years being pulled by the corporate lobbyists. And, you know, I spend a lot of time in Washington astounded at how many well-intentioned people on the progressive side and liberal side have given up on Congress. Well, I tell you, there are two things going on, and you put your finger on at least one of them. Both parties raising enormous amounts of money from billionaires and from corporations and corporate executives. So they're beholden to the person who pays the piper calls the tune. You know, they're beholden to their financiers. And so one of the things we have to do is to break the grip of this mega money that's flowing into both parties. Okay. So there's no question what you're saying that corporate world and the billionaires have captured both political parties. The only place there can be a fundamental change is to start from below. Start in the state, start with Congress watch, fine, do that in every district, I'm all for that. But get into these movements. I mean, the second thing you gotta do something about, Ralph, is you gotta do something about gerrymandering. I mean, the, the gerrymandering that took place after the 2010 census was horrendous. I've just written a piece and it's on my website, reclaimamericandream.org. There were seven states where the Republicans controlled the gerrymandering in the 2010 census, after the 2010 census. And in those states, those seven states, Republicans won 19 more House seats than they earned in terms of the popular vote. In those seven states, the Republicans outvoted Democrats 16.7 million to 16.3 million. Explain to our listeners what gerrymandering is. Gerrymandering Uh, is manipulating the district lines of the legislative and congressional districts. So you push all, if you're a Republican, you push all the Democrats you can, and you're in Pennsylvania, you push all of them into a few districts around Philadelphia and around Pittsburgh. 
and maybe Erie, and you say, all right, we'll give them those four or five seats, and then we'll arrange all the other p- parts of the state, the suburbs, where we tend to be fairly competitive, tend to be split fairly evenly between Democrats and Republicans. We'll tie them to rural areas where they're Republican majorities, so we'll get more seats than we wanted. I'll stick with Pennsylvania. In 2012, more people in Pennsylvania voted for Democratic candidates for the House of Representatives. Pennsylvania has 18 seats in the House of Representatives. So you would expect the Democrats maybe to get 10 and the Republicans to get 8, or maybe 9 and 9 because it was pretty close. It was exactly the other way. The Republicans got 13 seats and the Democrats got 5. Totally lopsided from the results. Same thing in North Carolina, same thing in Michigan, same thing in Wisconsin. And the Democrats do it too on the other side. The problem is you've got safe districts set up by each party. The incumbents get elected again and again and again, and they go to Congress and they pay no attention to public opinion because they've got safe seats. So we got to bust money and we got to bust gerrymandering if we want to get our country and our democracy back. Yeah, as our listeners might want to know, our system is supposed to be structured so you, the voters, pick the elected officials, the politicians. But as Mr. Smith is talking about gerrymandering, depending on who the Democrats or Republicans control the state house and the legislature around the country, gerrymander flips that, where the politicians pick their voters and develop safe seats that are not competitive so in many districts all over the country in the congressional area you have one party dominance you don't even have a two-party contest and that is the antithesis of democracy which is why mr smith keeps hammering away in his speeches and his articles on this phenomenon known as gerrymandering but the courts are starting to wake up on that right wonderful wonderful can you believe it the supreme court just last month issued a five to four opinion that the people of Arizona who passed a popular referendum calling for an independent redistricting commission, that is not the legislature, not the sitting politicians who like to draw the map so they can stay in office, but an independent commission would draw the map. Well, the legislature said, no, 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 Constitution gives us that power, the U.S. Constitution. It went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, no, the people were exercising the legislative power, power derived from the people. And wonder of wonders, literally last week, the Supreme Court in the state of Florida said the gerrymandering done by the Florida legislature, which is one of the seven states I was just talking about, was unconstitutional because it was set up to keep the Republican Party and the incumbents in power, and it ordered the state legislature to go back and redraw the boundaries on eight congressional districts in the state. And because of the way districts are drawn, it's going to affect much more than that. That's a very important case. There are lawsuits now in other states. Alabama, Texas, Virginia. There are people starting to move on fixing gerrymandering reform in Virginia and Illinois and other states around the country. California and Washington State have already moved ahead. They have citizens' commissions. There are citizens' commissions in six states in the country. This can be done, and it's absolutely vital to getting our democracy back in the hands of the people. We're building more material on our website. It's critical.
The Republican strategy to disenfranchise their political opponents has reached a whole new phase in Alabama, and this time the racism driving it has been laid bare for all to see. Due to budget cuts, Alabama law enforcement agencies said that 31 satellite DMV offices would no longer have access to driver's license examiners, meaning that residents will need to travel to other counties to apply for licenses. And it's important to note that this move comes just one year after the state's voter photo ID law went into effect. So we're going to require you to have a photo ID uh, given by the state to be able to take part in our democratic process. Oh, but by the way, you can't get it in your county. And not if you're a certain type of person, especially because uh, there's an incredibly racial, uh, uh, again, uh, a motive that is driving this. Uh, now, this was written by John Archibald, the writer for AL.com. And he wrote, take a look at the 10 Alabama counties with the highest percentage of non-white registered voters. And he lists those counties. Thanks to its budgetary insanity and inanity, just opted to close driver license bureaus in eight of them. Eight of the ten highest percentage of non-white registered voters. In fact, every single county in which blacks make up more than 75% of registered voters will see their driver license office closed. Every one. But maybe it's not racial at all, right? Maybe it's just political. And let's face it, it may not be either. But no matter the intent, the consequence is the same. Now, that is a message that I know resonated with you, Ben, earlier on today. Yeah, I mean, I'm reading another piece here in, uh, in al.com. <laughs> um, uh, so Seems like a great guy. 2011, Alabama lawmakers approved that voter ID law. And, and I mean, now, and I would say, and then and and somewhere there they said, and later, we'll just close all those courthouses. I mean, still, you can still drive to a different courthouse, but you got to leave your county. Yes. And, and leave your entire county. Yeah. So in 2011, Alabama lawmakers approved the state's voter ID law, making it illegal to vote in Alabama with a government-issued ID. So we start with that. That was based on efforts to crush voter fraud which is not a real thing. It's totally made up, and yet, yep. again, exist. thanks to, now to sound, you know, again, as, as soon as I say this, I feel like I sound conspiratorial. Thanks to ALEC, that passed in state after state after yeah. state. Mm -hmm. A concerted effort by conservatives that wrote one piece of legislation, and then it spread like wildflower, like wildfire. Mm -hmm. Wildflowers don't spread across the <laughs> Which country. Which is too bad, really. February comes after January. That's yeah. what it is. I knew yeah, it no, it's, it's made up. The cases are so rare. Yeah. Sharks kill more unicorns each year than there is voter, voter fraud so, cases. So for most folks, obviously, that means a driver's license. In those 29 counties, you might be able to register at the courthouse, but you won't be able to cast a ballot unless you have that idea. Uh, ID. And he says that's not just an inconvenience, it, it's a problem. Then he says, look at the list of the counties now where you, can, where you can't get a driver's license. Choctaw, Sumter, Hale, Green, Perry, Wilcox, Loundis, Butler, Crenshaw, Macon, Bullock. If you had to, and then he writes, if you had to memorize all the Alabama counties in ninth grade, like I did, and even if you got most of them, like I have, you can probably guess where we're going with this. Depending on which counties you count as being in Alabama's black belt, either 12 or 15 black belt counties soon won't have a place to get a driver's yeah. license. 12 or 15 counties yeah. where you can't get a driver's license. There's no way it's a coincidence. I know, no. it's insane. So not only was there no voter fraud situation plaguing the country, not only did Alabama pass these strict driver's license laws to you know, basically prove your identity when you vote, now they're making it extremely difficult for black communities to get licenses in order to vote. Like, that's not a coincidence. Yeah. That's yeah. not a coincidence. It's not really, really fast. It's not a coincidence in Alabama. It's not a coincidence across the country. But I'll let you uh, decide. We're going to bring up a map right now of uh, voter ID laws across America. Red requires voter ID. Is there a possibility that certain types of people are being targeted with that map? <laughs> hmm. 
you know, the, weird uh, that. So this guy's name is Kyle Williams, right in this piece here in uh, Al.com. It's always going to be funny for me. Um, when this, he writes this, and this is a great point, and I think it's a great because it, it, it's an acknowledgement that we, we read it in the piece that you quoted. Yes. Uh, who's the writer of that piece? Do you remember? That was Archibald. Uh, John Archibald. Right? John Archibald. John Archibald's that. That, that the shift is focusing and, and the, the Supreme Court decision required uh, intent. And, and we need yes. to stop talking about intent. And this guy makes the same point. When the state passed the voter ID law, Republican lawmakers argued it was supposed to prevent voter fraud. Right? Forget whether that's true, even though we know it's not. Democrats said the law was written to disenfranchise black voters and suppress the voice of the poor. Maybe, maybe not. By the way, we go back to that Daily Show piece and we got the official in North Carolina who just admitted it. Yeah. I mean, he didn't admit it in so much a racist way as, well, I want to keep Democrats from voting. Yeah. yeah. And the people we know are Democrats are mm -hmm. black. That's the best way you can paint it. Maybe, maybe not, Kyle Williams writes. But put these two things together, voter ID and 29 counties without a place where you can get one, and voter ID becomes what the Democrats always said it was. Because it doesn't matter what the intent was. The result is black people can't vote. You want us to do you a huge favor and say you didn't mean for that to happen? Fine. Yeah. No problem. Mm -hmm. Hey, I have some. It happened anyway. I know that must be terrible news for you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But obviously, we're going to have Low to. Low and it. behold. Yeah. I know your intents were totally pure and righteous, right? Voter fraud. But as a result here, you've disenfranchised black people. We obviously can't have that, so we're yeah. going to fix it. So let's go fix it. This is what the Justice Department is supposed to do. And this is why, just a last little thing, this is why you cannot, in good conscience, if you don't like the Democratic nominee, sit out this election. Jay, my name is Jesse Ann. I'm calling from beautiful Victoria, British Columbia, which is a part of the traditional Coast Salish territory and occupied by the Songhees and Esquimalt First Nations. I'm calling today to thank you for including the content um, in your Indigenous Peoples podcast that addresses the systematic failure of generations of federal government towards the Indigenous community in Canada. It's a topic that was largely unexplored in our history texts. We learn more about Christopher Columbus and European wars in school than we do about how Canada was quote-unquote founded. I grew up in the 90s and early 2000s um, within a system towards Indigenous people of racism, both obvious and subtle. It was a huge part of how non-Indigenous people viewed and treated Indigenous people in Canada. I was raised by adults who, although they would not often come right out and say it, had a worldview that categorized Aboriginals as lazy, undereducated, and substance abusers, among other things. And it was a widely held belief that Aboriginal people were disproportionately using social services because they didn't want to work and just wanted to have a bunch of kids to get better welfare checks. At the time, I did not challenge this belief because I didn't know any better. However, I am now repulsed by the notion that the people I love thought this way, and some continue to do so. What I know now is that social services such as welfare, child protection services and the like were created in large part to suppress the indigenous population in Canada, to dismantle their human rights and their entitlement to their own culture. 
One of the people on the Democracy Now! segment that you featured in your podcast cited some statistics from Manitoba, which is a province here in Canada, including um, that their population, although the fact that it's only 4% Indigenous women, that same group makes up over 50% of their, li- of their missing women. Having lived in many provinces in this country, I can tell you that Manitoba is not unique in this regard, but her statistic is correct. Aboriginals also make up a disproportionate amount of the homeless population in Canada. Stigma against Indigenous people here is hidden but strong, and non-Indigenous people have done very little to remedy this, which means it can be more difficult for an Indigenous person to get education, find work, secure housing, and participate in society. Canadian governments have for years negotiated treaty agreements with tribes and then violated them. They have given away assumed land that did not belong to them. The most egregious action against our Indigenous population was the introduction of residential schools, which is what the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was convened to explore. Families were broken apart, children deprived of not only their culture and heritage, but parental care and family structure. It is no wonder that many survivors of residential schools had and have difficulty, sometimes for generations afterwards, getting themselves to a place where they have all the same opportunities as someone without that history. To put it plainly and admittedly a little broadly, generations of people have PTSD from actions carried out by our federal government, who have, instead of created avenues of healing, decided decade after decade to create more and more barriers for Indigenous people. The Truth and Reconciliation Committee, pardon me, Commission, which was about residential schools and telling the stories of survivors, was reported in our media, but its findings and recommendations were largely underreported, and the actual content and stories of the survivors were scarcely mentioned. The average Canadian would have learned more about the report from your most recent podcast about Indigenous peoples than they would have from our own mainstream media. Right now, rates of HIV and diabetes are higher among the Indigenous population than any other group in Canada. Some reserve communities, which are the result of government assuming native territory but being gracious enough to allow them a small living parcel, are without things like drinking water, healthcare facilities, grocery stores, paved roads, and telecom services. Suicide rates are 10 times higher in Nunavut, a northern territory largely inhabited by the Inuit people, than in the rest of Canada. The median income for an Indigenous person is less than 30 per- is 30% less than the average non-Aboriginal Canadian. Despite representing just over 4% of the national population, Indigenous people account for over 21% of tuberculosis cases in Canada. It is an ongoing, deeply rooted problem, and very few people here are talking about it, and fewer yet have the ability to take action. However, the Idle No More movement, as well as others, have generated a great deal of attention towards Indigenous issues. These groups need our support. We have a federal election in Canada on Monday, October 19th. Stephen Harper's Conservative government, who has been in power since 2006, is up for re-election. This is a government that has been active in trying to diminish the land, water, and human rights of Indigenous groups throughout the country. This is a government who has said that violence being perpetrated against Indigenous women was, quote, not on their radar, while groups across the board have been calling for a national inquiry into such matters. The Conservative government is content to blame everyone except history and institutionalized racism for the issues plaguing the Indigenous people of this country. No one knows how the election will go next week. The polls have been close. 
More years of the Harper government will be absolutely devastating for the already underserved Indigenous people of Canada. I just wanted to give some background to some of your listeners who may not have that information. Thank you, Jay, for all the work that you do. Looking forward to the next show. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can either record a message on the voice memo app of your phone and email it to me, j at bestoftheleft.com, or leave a voicemail at 202-999-3991. So today I have a little bit of an update for you. It was about two years ago that my girlfriend Amanda and I went to London Uh, doing a little bit of medical tourism and so then of course I came back and talked about the you know, the, the difficulties of getting drugs for rare diseases in America, as well as the difference between the UK medical system and a lot of people's perceptions of the UK medical system. And ever since then, rarely, but you know, every once in a while, I get messages from very, very nice people asking, you know, hey, how are things going with that? Uh, how How is her uh, situation? How did the drug from the UK work out? And so on and so on. And so uh, now I have another update for you on that. Uh, the, the background story is that Amanda found a tumor in her leg. It's called a desmoid tumor. It's very rare, about like two to four people out of every million have this, uh, at least that we know of. And uh, so she found it in 2006. She's been dealing with it for a long time, you know, since long before I knew her. Early on, she had surgery, but, you know, it's a rare disease. People don't know that much about it, doctors or surgeons. And so they're like, well, you got a tumor in your leg. Let's cut it out. And it turns out that desmoids are like the hydra of tumors. So you try to cut one out and three come back in its place. And that's exactly what happened to her. So ever since then, she's been on you know a whole variety of you know medical treatments, uh, including chemotherapy. It's it's technically a type of cancer, and there's actually dispute about whether or not it's technically cancer. But it's a locally aggressive tumor. It grows. It fucks up whatever it's near, and uh, the only thing that makes it not exactly like cancer is that it doesn't necessarily spread to the rest of the body. So. That was the predicament she was in for many years. She tried lots of different things and just nothing really worked. And so uh, some some studies had been done that showed that there may be some promise in this drug that was available in the UK and you know many other places, but just happened to not be available in the US. That's why we went to London and it did okay. Like the plan sort of went as we. Uh, hoped it would. Uh, the drug definitely helped, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the miracle drug we were looking for or anything, right? So, you know, skip forward another, like, about a year or so, and then there's a new opportunity. They were doing a brand new drug trial at the National Institutes of Health here in Washington, D.C. So we were incredibly lucky, not only that she got onto the trial, uh, there was like 17 people total on this trial. She got to be one of them, and it just happened to be about five metro stops up from us. I mean, there was one person on the trial who would have to fly in from Hawaii, so not nearly as convenient for them. So she was on this trial for about a year, and that drug 
was the single most effective treatment she's ever been on. Her pain went away. Uh, the tumor shrank. It changed in density. She was able to ride a bike for the first time since she was a teenager. Uh, she went with me to hike 50 miles in Glacier National Park uh, last month, and she never could have done that, you know, two years ago. And so this is like almost the miracle drug. However, we found out recently that uh, it was having some long-term side effects. I mean, the premise of the drug really, I mean, the way it's intended to work is that it messes with your hormones and, you know, you can mess with your hormones a little bit and it's okay. You mess with them a little bit too much and you start getting into the danger zone. And so her blood tests were showing, eh, we might be getting into the danger zone. And so then we were faced with a decision, keep going into the danger zone or hold back and not go down that path. And so at the same time as she was being faced with the decision to quit the trial that had been you know, the, the only effective drug she'd ever been on, we also found out that Pfizer, the big drunk drug company that's actually you know, responsible for the creation of this drug, had decided to not pursue it anymore. They were not going to commercialize the drug. They were going to stop making it the trial was going to end, and when the supply ran out, it was out, and there would never be any more of it, because they couldn't figure out how to make profit on it. It wasn't being made for a disease that enough people had, and so it wasn't worth their time. And so now, you know, they're trying to maybe work out a way to hand off their research to maybe a smaller company that would be willing to take you know a, a smaller drug with a smaller market and make a smaller profit on it, but they're not going to do it. And it's totally up in the air as to whether or not that drug is going to continue at all and be available to anyone. But Amanda had basically decided, you know, the, the right thing for her to do was to quit the trial anyways. And so the fact that the drug may disappear completely was just sort of, you know, the, the end cap on that decision. Like, well, all right. I mean, Either I quit now or maybe I quit when it runs out. It almost doesn't matter. So here we are back at almost square one. She's not on any drugs. Uh, the tumor has, uh, you know, it, it shrank due to this trial drug and the pain had gone away a lot and now it's coming back and we don't know what's next. So uh, that's the update. Uh, she's still you know, doing well in, in good spirits and all of that. You know, lives a perfectly normal life, still rides bikes, still goes for long walks. But we just don't know if the tumor is going to have you know, a bit of a resurgence and cause more pain going forward. And so that brings us to this weekend. And uh, we're going up to Philadelphia for this fundraiser that happens every year. It's called Running for Answers. You can find out details at runningforanswers.com. It is the single biggest fundraiser for the only research foundation focusing on desmoids. Like I said, it's a rare disease, so it's a pretty tight-knit community. <laughs> they have one research foundation that's trying to fund research so that people who have the disease can actually have it treated. So if you're interested in details or in donating or in anything like that, uh, runningforanswers.com is the race. DTRF is the Desmoid Tumor Research Foundation. 
So, of course, you can get details there. Uh, we're going to be going up there this weekend. And if you'd like to donate to our uh, 5K run that we'll be doing, I'll put a link in the show notes for that. And, uh, and, and then so as if that wasn't busy and crazy enough as it was, immediately after that, my family from out of the country is coming to visit. I have uh, my sister went off and married a Frenchman and moved to France and had a couple of French kids. And every year, uh, the whole family comes and visits the U.S. in the fall. Yeah, and so that happens to be this next week. So uh, instead of doing a show on Tuesday. And because I don't have time to make one ahead of time, like I, I might uh, do sometimes, I just have to take Tuesday off and play with my uh, little nephews with French accents, which is exactly as adorable as you imagine. So you are forewarned. I'll put out a rerun, uh, you know, apologies in advance, but sometimes life gets in the way. That's just how it is. So that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That's absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. You can get even more from us by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained We can't see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can't see past our own sad stories and See past our own sad stories and wonder what we're doing. Can't see past our own sad stories and forget who it is before.